0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hello, I'm Simon Long, Finance Editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Money Talks. On this show, as the dust settles after France's first-round presidential vote, we'll hear what each of the two successful candidates would mean for businesses across the country.
2: If you chat to business leaders, as I've been doing, and just ask them the question to imagine the possibility of a Le Pen victory, just as Trump and Brexit came along, they all go a little bit pale and then they describe chaos and emigration and people running for the hills.
1: Also, we'll have a report from the Royal Economic Society's annual conference about how that standard measure, GDP, is adjusting to an increasingly digitised world.
3: The best-known example, I suppose, is Wikipedia, where people voluntarily write or edit Wikipedia entries and that is substituted for buying encyclopedias. But there are much more commercial ones.
1: And we'll hear about the website that crowdsources financial algorithms.
0: The algorithms remain the intellectual property of the coders. And so because of that, they sort of get to keep the ownership of the algorithm and they also get a 10% cut of the profits.
1: First, though... On May the 7th, France will head to the polls to decide between two wildly contrasting presidential candidates, the nationalist Marine Le Pen and the more liberal Emmanuel Macron. They seem to disagree on just about everything. So how might the decision affect French business? Adam Roberts, our Europe business correspondent, joins me now to discuss this. Adam, looking at the polls, there doesn't seem much chance of a Marine Le Pen victory, but... The world's getting used to shock election results, so I suppose we should prepare ourselves for that. And how is the business community looking on that?
2: Well, I think the business community, along with everyone else, is pretty much ruling out the possibility of a Le Pen victory. The, the CAC 40, the, the French stock market, leapt on Monday after the results of the first round uh, by about 4%. I think businesses hope that the prospect of a Macron victory will will be great for them, and they think that the, the threat of a Le Pen victory has receded. Uh, That said, if you chat to business leaders, as I've been doing, and just ask them the question to imagine the possibility of a Le Pen victory, just as Trump and Brexit came along, uh, they all go a little bit pale, and then they describe chaos and emigration and people running for the hills. The the leader of one company I spoke to said that, and a rather large company, said that they had re-registered their company from being a French company to being a European company to make it easier to move their headquarters out of the country were Le Pen to one day win there would be fear of capital flight investors pulling out entrepreneurs fleeing from Paris so I think the business community by and large would dread the idea of a Le Pen victory.
1: So I can see that they would flock to Emmanuel Macron but we don't know much about him really do we I mean he's he's something of an unknown quantity no real political background and of course associated with the outgoing administration of François Hollande which has become extremely unpopular so what does business expect of him?
2: I think business is generally more inclined to favour Macron because his limited record in government, he was economy minister for a couple of years, he worked at liberalising the French economy in small but symbolic ways, opening up new markets for the coach industry, doing some small efforts to liberalise the labour law. So they see that he is by and large a liberaliser, someone who thinks that free markets are valuable. Uh, He was a banker, he's only 39 years old, although he was in Hollande's government, he's not ever been in Hollande's party. So he's not seen as an old dinosaur from the left. He's seen as a fresh face, someone who understands the benefits of trade, immigration. He's pro-European. So the business community generally likes what it sees in Emmanuel Macron.
1: But how concerned are they that precisely because he doesn't come from one of the established parties he would struggle to get his policies implemented?
2: Well there is obviously the question of how to form a government. The president in France is very powerful but the parliament and then the government that forms from the parliament is also very powerful and Macron has yet to prove that he can win the parliamentary election that comes up in June. Even so there are many people here who are quite sanguine about that. They believe that if other parties do well in the parliamentary poll, the old parties, the socialists and the republicans who've done so badly in the in the presidential poll, that Macron is a good centrist who is able to work with almost anyone who can build a coalition and find like-minded MPs to go along with his program. So at the moment Business in France is quite relaxed about the prospect of Macron getting his agenda implemented. They think that he's a, a good communicator and someone who probably would be able to get enough allies to implement what he wants to do.
1: Moving beyond France for the moment, I suppose that as a staunchly pro-EU candidate. He is also being being cheered on by the other countries of the European Union.
2: He is. So if you look across to Germany and, and to other members of the European Union, they all would much, much rather have uh, Emmanuel Macron as president. He He's very pro-European, whereas Marine Le Pen would like to have a referendum on at least withdrawing from the euro and perhaps getting out of the EU altogether. Uh, Emmanuel Macron would like to have further integration, uh, strong common foreign policy and, and very close ties with With Germany especially. So he's a a great fan of the EU and and businesses actually like that as well. There are many in France who don't fully agree with that. But I think on balance, most French people will be ready to accept the EU in the ways that maybe the British are much less willing to do so.
1: Well, I was going to ask that more parochial question, but by the same token, I suppose that Emmanuel Macron would be much harder for Britain to deal with in the Brexit negotiations. And so, Britons maybe should be quietly rooting for Marine Le Pen.
2: Yes, I I think Emmanuel Macron has made absolutely no bones about his view that Brexit is a disaster. He thinks it will be bad for Britain and bad for the EU. He believes that Britain should be given no uh, special treatment and and no uh, special assistance in leaving. He he wants a strong EU, and and if that means Britain not doing very well out of Brexit, then so be it. Uh, Marine Le Pen, by contrast, goes out of her way to praise the British voters for Brexit and, and says that what Britain has done is a brave and admirable thing, and she would be delighted, I think, if she were to be in office to to encourage the British to do well outside of the European Union and therefore to weaken the the organisation itself. So yes, if you're just looking at it from a British point of view, then you'd be voting for Marine Le Pen.
1: On that sobering note, Adam Roberts, thank you very much. Thank you. So listeners, what do you expect to happen in the forthcoming election? Are there any French entrepreneurs out there with a view? Do let us know. You can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radioateconomist.com. Next, policymakers have long used gross domestic product, GDP, to inform their decisions. Yet in an increasingly digitized world, it's becoming harder to pinpoint exactly what's going on across complex economies, as traditional business models are shaken up. Our economics correspondent Samir Keynes has been discussing this with Diane Coyle of the University of Manchester.
4: So, first of all, why should we care about getting GDP and its measurement right? We should care for one thing, because policymakers use it to set the
3: level of interest rates and taxes and spending. The Bank of England isn't only looking at the level of real GDP, but at the difference between that and potential GDP. And people think that it's an actual number, but it isn't a thing, it's a concept. And if the concept is in trouble, then all of that policy making is in trouble as well. And I sometimes worry that the gap between real GDP and potential GDP, the output gap, is like the difference between unicorns and griffins, and we don't know what
4: we're talking about. GDP and its measurement has never been perfect, though, right? There are these boundaries. Some things are recorded in GDP and some things aren't. You always have
3: to decide what you're going to include in the economy and conventionally the boundary has been that firms and government do things that are productive and get counted and households do things that are not productive and don't get counted.
4: So there's this famous example where if you hire a cleaner then that gets included in GDP but then if you marry your cleaner and then she does all the housework for free then that doesn't get included.
3: And that kind of transition across the boundary is is inevitable because you've got to put the boundary somewhere. But digital change is also blurring that kind of boundary. People are doing things that are productive and actually competing directly with marketed products. The best-known example, I suppose, is Wikipedia, where people voluntarily write or edit Wikipedia entries and that has substituted for buying encyclopedias. But there are much more commercial ones, a lot of open-source software. So these sort of substitutions across the production boundary, as economists call it, are getting, I think, economically quite significant.
4: And what about buying services? Like, you know, in the olden days, you'd go to a travel agent and you'd say, please, will you book my holiday for me? And now we just Google it online. Is that having an effect on measurement as well? That's one of two other things. There is um, what you might call
3: intermediation that you, do it for you, that you do it yourself. So rather than go to the travel agent or an insurance broker in the high street, you'll sit at home with your computer and do that searching yourself. Now, there's still an intermediary, so there's still some marketed transaction. But it's less money, and it may be somebody overseas... It's saving you time, but you're using some of your own labour and capital. So there's just a change in the structure of production of those services. And the other bit is the sharing economy, where people are taking some transactions out of the market. If you do a home swap, instead of paying a hotel, you are exchanging something for free, which in principle ought to bring down the price of holidays, and there's also a gain in consumer welfare
4: there. So where could this be being picked up? If I'm getting... A lot of value from my internet subscription then surely some of that will just be captured in the extra money that I'm paying to my broadband provider? Some of it certainly will and uh, that example is a
3: good example of a marketed transaction that's still captured in GDP and so is the electricity that you use but there are things about how people are using their time particularly online that it would be uh, good to have the statistics track through a new time use survey we've not had one of those for quite a long time and we don't quite know what the scale of these things is going to be because it's still all in transition. So perhaps it's just a case of keeping an eye on this for the time being and seeing how big it becomes.
4: So when economists normally look at this issue, they normally you know, do a deep dive into one specific area. So you know, they look at travel agents or they look at housework or, or some other area. But what you're saying is that it could be very, very broad. Yes. Uh, if you
3: look at any particular bit, it looks quite small. Another example would be the fact that We don't go to the high street to rent DVDs now, so there are fewer of those sorts of stores and fewer banks on the high street, so investment in commercial real estate has been declining, and that's a little bit chipped off GDP. And if you add up all of these across the waterfront, they might be much more significant than it looks if you take each one separately.
1: Diane Coyle there, talking to Samir Keynes. Finally, trading algorithms sit at the heart of many quantitative finance firms. To that end, funds usually hire physicists and mathematicians to create and test new ones. But a new website called Quantopian is crowdsourcing ideas from the public instead. Krista Koskalo, our finance correspondent, has been looking into this and joins me now. Krista, so what is Quantopian? Is it just a website or is it a fund itself?
0: It kind of combines elements of both. So Quantopian has existed for, for a few years already, and they've been focusing so far on, on building up their platform, which is offered for free to the users, which is why they've actually sought venture capital funding. But the, the premise is that they attract a lot of people to this website where people who already have some skills in coding, so some, perhaps some of these same sorts of physicists or biologists who work, you know, their day job might be dealing with complicated models, modeling evolution or something, but they might not have experience in finance, This website is very much about allowing those sorts of people to sort of play around with financial data, learn about it. It's almost like an online course website in some sense, but the the end game is that it it does have an element of a fund. So basically they have 120,000 members who code algorithms. They've now selected a crop of 15 to which their Quantopian is allocating funds. So it's basically acting as a hedge fund. It has an, an investor that has invested money in Quantopian as an asset manager. And then they've used a really detailed screening process to pick the best algorithm that they think. And the the algorithms remain the intellectual property of the coders. And so because of that, they sort of get to keep the ownership of the algorithm, and they also get a 10% cut of the profits.
1: And there are profits, or is it too early to say how well these investments are doing?
0: It's too early to say in terms of big-scale real money, because they only announced at the beginning of of April that they were actually allocating capital to the algorithms that they had spent, you know, the past year or, or several months selecting. But they have run rigorous tests and they, they were big on insisting that they, they don't just do back tests. So the problem with a lot of these algorithms is that you sort of, you give it a set of data and you, you tell it to look for patterns. And if you just test it on one set of data, then it sort of overfits. It sort of, you know, finds patterns that are specific to that data set. But then when you unleash that algorithm on actual markets, which change all the time and, you know, past performance doesn't always predict future performance. It might perform very poorly, so they allow the people to play around with the algorithms, but before they actually select them for an actual allocation, they also sort of front-test them. The algorithm developer might have worked the algorithm on a basis of a data set spanning a few years, and then they'll say, okay, let's cut that off, and then let's run the algorithm for six months or something on, on basically markets as they're currently running to sort of really calibrate it.
1: And it's clear that this is in the interest of the algorithm developers. They obviously see it more to their benefit to do it this way rather than taking their intellectual property to an established fund and trying to sell it?
0: Well, that's a little bit difficult to, to say for sure because this is such a new business model. But the way the traditional funds have worked is they're mostly based in New York, a few in London. So there are even sort of work visa issues. And they're very secretive, so it's very hard for these people who might have heard that they exist but, you know, don't even know what they're doing. So the Quantopians platform really seems to be a lot about the sort of learning how to apply their existing expertise in modeling and computer science to to actual sort of finance challenges. And there is also a a middle ground. So the people whose algorithms aren't good enough to be selected for the outside allocation of money, which is definitely the most lucrative, can also use Quantopians systems to trade their own savings using their algorithm. So they can learn a lot, they can sort of trade their own money, and if their algorithm is good enough, then they're going to make profits from the cut that they get.
1: And and what are the employment implications of this? Presumably Quantopian doesn't have a big staff itself, then It's, it's basically all outsourced, it's just a platform.
0: Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. I mean, I think, you know, if this model were to were to pick up, it, it could have pretty big implications, because the idea is, is that talent exists worldwide, right? And even if the, the established funds in, in New York or London, big players who have tens of billions of, of assets under management, even if they spend a lot of their time going to elite schools and recruiting the smartest people who have the skills that they want, that just takes a lot of time. And, you know, operationally, there's a certain limit to how many people you can have. And They tend to have total employment of maybe 1,000, 2,000, many of these firms, of whom, you know, a few hundred are these elite researchers who spend their whole time doing the actual research and finding these new algorithms, and the rest are just sort of actually sort of implementing that. And and Quantopian already has 120,000 members. I mean, I know some of them probably only had a very casual interest, but, you know, if... If you can really sort of scale up and find this talent from wherever, you don't need to sponsor their visas. If they really like doing their biological modelling at their research institute, they like their day job as a professor teaching teaching people, but they want to do something on the side, test this out, make a little extra money, it, it can really sort of flexibilize this model and open up a little bit the black box that has been these secretive hedge funds.
1: Krista Koskalu, thanks for joining us. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read any of the articles discussed this week, pick up the forthcoming issue of the newspaper or visit our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.